Welcome to this production from College Place United Methodist Church. To find out more about our church, please visit our website at www.collegeplaceumc.org. And now, here's our sermon from Reverend Tab Miller. Now, I'm going to be honest. Not enough coffee in this church or in Glen County that could prepare me for the text this morning. I'm just not feeling up to the task. Uh, we're preaching in the book of James. The lectionary has asked us to visit James, the brother of Jesus. And if you know anything about James, he's not one to pull a punch. This is my second weekend, and I just feel like I've already been hit by a truck. So I'm warning you that that's kind of what James is going to do. This guy's got a nasty right hook. He doesn't miss, so forget coffee this morning. We need smelling salts to get through this. But let me read uh, James chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or you sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges or judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. It is, not, it is, not, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have both broken the law and become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. This is God's word, and we believe it. James' example here, the extended example that he gives of the rich and the poor man coming into the synagogue, is really written to a very specific Christian community who is very, very influenced by traditional Jewish practices and is influenced by the greater Roman culture that surrounded them. And so, as moving as a story as it might be to see this poor man being snubbed in the synagogue, it might not grip us as it did its first readers. 
Being far removed by both space and time, we might not feel the impact. We could miss out on the subtlety of James' prolonged example. In short, what we are tempted to do is to try to modernize the example and just dramatize it and make it happen in every town in America. Happen right here, perhaps, in our own midst. So we get at this sort of one-to-one sort of scenario. A rich man, well-known in our community, comes in a few minutes early, and the pastor waves at the ushers or perhaps the greeters, depending on the setting, making sure that they're going to pay careful attention to the rich man who's coming in. They rush over to him and make sure he has coffee and donuts or whatever food they're serving at the church. They make sure that he has a seat of honor where everybody's going to be able to see him. And when the pastor makes his announcements, he mentions that they are honored by this special rich guest. But a poor man comes in the door, and the pastor makes a similar gesture, but this time he's saying, make sure to get him away. He kind of, he smells, or he, he doesn't look good in our church. Make sure he goes to the back. Make sure you hurry him away so that no one can see him. Now, we might all imagine that this could happen in America today. But I honestly don't think it would happen here at College Place. We might admit in our heart of hearts that we feel nervous when unknown persons walk in our door. Often, homelessness is coupled with addictions and and many other troubles. Mental illnesses, they're prone to having problems. And so, we're not being judgmental. We're just being sensitive to the realities and hardships of the homeless. But most of us here do a good job, or would do a good job, I imagine, even though we might feel a sense of caution, we'd work to suppress any sort of negative outward signs, and we'd be careful, but we would not push them to the back. We would not think of doing such things. College Place is known for being hospitable, and we're known to be welcoming to people seeking to connect with Jesus. And so perhaps this won't connect with us because we're not seeing ourselves in this situation, and yet James is just giving an example. That's what you have to understand. This is just an example. This isn't the issue itself. The rich man and the poor man in the synagogue is just an illustration. It's only an expression of how one sin can come about, but it can come about in a multitude of ways. James' first statement is not, do not show favoritism to the rich and the poor, or the rich over the poor, his statement is that the people of God must not show favoritism. Period. That's it. Bottom line. Do not show favoritism. Period. Favoritism comes in a variety of flavors. And it really, if you're trying to think, what, what, where, what is favoritism really? It really is simply the other side of the same coin that prejudice is on. Am I missing something? Step back. Okay. Thanks, JD. I was out of the light. Step into the light. I was wondering what was going on. Okay. Is that better? Can y'all see me? <coughs> okay. Now let me try to figure out where I was. 
opposite side of prejudice, right? The only difference that we really have here in the term is, is in our focus. Favoritism describes our positive feelings towards one group over another, whereas prejudice describes our negative feelings about a group against another. It's just two sides of the same coin. So it's not just don't show favoritism to the rich and don't show prejudice towards the poor. It's saying don't show favoritism at all. And by the way, the place doesn't matter either. It's happening in the synagogue, and we can translate that to happening here in the church, but it's Christians don't show favoritism. Whether here in this church building or out in public, because our witness is at stake. When you snub somebody, they take that coming from you as a Christian as a sign of your testimony. And prejudice is actually only limited by our imagination. It's only limited in the multitude of ways that we define ourselves. And in our society today, we have come up with a multitude of ways to define ourselves over against another. Countless differences. Race, ethnicity, nationality, religion, sexuality, geography, north and south, our education level, our diets, our political preferences. All of these things have labels that we place upon ourselves that make distinctions now, distinctions don't make prejudice. Just because we have ways of labeling ourselves doesn't mean that we're prejudiced. But prejudice comes in when we think of one label over against the other as somehow less than. Less than worthy, less than me, less than my group. Prejudice and bias is a difficult subject matter to talk about. I'm going to highlight just a couple of reasons why. The first one is this. It's a serious topic, right? And when pastors want to talk about a serious topic, oftentimes what we'll do is we'll tell a humorous story or a joke to open up the lesson. That kind of lightens the mood. It, it makes it a little less raw. We have all laughed together. We're all okay. But there are certain things in this life that are just too profound or too important to make fun of or to laugh about. It's just too serious to joke about. It's always too important when we're talking about prejudice than to make fun of it. It leaves us, when we talk about it, feeling very exposed and very raw, which leads us to the second reason it's very hard to talk about. And this is more to my overall point. Though t tensions and prejudices over racism, sexism, bigotry, whatever you want to label it, are extremely high in our culture today, probably higher than ever in my lifetime, no one thinks that they're prejudiced. No one says, I want to be prejudiced, except for perhaps some factions like the neo-Nazis. Everybody thinks that their side is right and the other side is being prejudiced against them. And both sides are leveling accusations at the other side. You're wrong, and that means you're prejudiced. I'm going to highlight a few arguments in just a moment about where our prejudices or our perceived prejudices are causing a lot of tension. Not to say that either side is wrong or that either side is prejudiced. If any side is, I want to bring our text today out of its socio-rhetorical setting in uh, a, a Jewish synagogue in the Roman province and bring it out into our world where we are today. It might make us feel a little raw. 
It might actually stir some emotions. When I bring up these subjects, you might feel some tension because we're all feeling it right now. And that's okay. You need to feel it. And just because you feel it doesn't mean I'm saying you're prejudiced. I'm saying I want you to think about these things. For some, statues, historical statues, are are salt in a wound. It's a reminder of a past they'd rather not remember. For others of us, statues are reminders of American history that we should not ignore. For some, taking a knee is a sign of concern for the oppressed, while for others, taking a knee is disrespect to our veterans. For some, certain measures at our borders are necessary to protect us as citizens, and for others, it is retributive, vindictive laws being enacted against people and families in need. I'm not going to tell you my opinion. That's not my job. But do you feel the tension? We know it's there. We talk about it all the time. It's on the news. And what would we be if we can't be a people as the body of Christ that don't at least admit that the world around us is having an argument? That there's not tension there. We have to admit that there's tension or we can't move forward together. And both sides, while they have argued and argued about their side and why they're right and they don't think they're prejudiced, both sides, I'm not saying if you're on that side you've argued this, but people on both sides have said that there is prejudice on the other side against them. So we can all agree that the tension is there. I spent a couple of years with my father-in-law working on a film, and we went to talk to people about these very kinds of things. We went to people on either side of a particular issue and talk to them about their feelings. And no one that we talked to thought that they were being hateful. And I certainly would not call them that either. However, one thing was for sure. Every one of them had pain. Every single one of them on either side felt pain. Within our congregation right here, I'm sure that there are people on either side of some of the debates I mentioned. And that doesn't mean that because we disagree with one another, that we're hateful to one another. But my point is this. Whether we agree on what prejudice is or isn't, we all know it exists. We might not be able to label it. We might not be able to define it for ourselves. But we all know it's there. And that is what prejudice really is. It's vile, it's divisive, and it's insidious, and it's hard to detect within ourselves. We say, well, isn't prejudice just obvious? It's not. If not being prejudiced was this timeless common sense, then James would not have gone on and on and on about not showing favoritism. He gives this long, protracted argument, starting it with a very extended and detailed analogy, followed by much theology. If we know it ought to be wrong, he just would say, Hey, guys, I know you're doing this. Stop it. It's not as obvious as we think it is. It has made its, uh, being against prejudice has made its way into our society, being against it. But it's not always common sense. For us in our modern day, in our judicial system, for example, we know it's, be, it's fair to be impartial. Every trial starts with the assumption of innocent until proven guilt, right? So we vet our juries, making sure that they don't have prior biases. And this is an endless task that never is perfect, but at least we're trying, Right? And where does this come from? Where does this idea of not being biased in our trials come from? It actually comes from 
the influence of Hebrew Scripture upon us in the West. It is, it is the Hebrew Bible that has impacted us and has shaped our laws. Now, if you're looking at it from a historical perspective, you might think that the influence on our systems of civic life really come from the Greco-Roman world. But, believe it or not, Roman law was not like Jewish law. Our philosophy of equality is really reflected in our ties to Judaism and Hebrew law and not the Greco-Roman world. It is Leviticus 19.15 that says to the people of Israel, do not pervert justice, do no, show no partiality to the poor or show favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly and equally. Hebrew law is the law that demands that people be treated fairly and equally. Roman law, the law in Rome was unabashedly in favor of the rich over the poor. The Roman law did not even have a pretense to pretend to be fair because it was built on the assumption that the rich are better than the poor. And we have our own assumptions about who is better than who in our own society. It might not come out in the same way, but in Rome, rich were powerful and poor were not. The rich had stakes in the game. They could make or break a society with their influence and their money. Common sense would say it's good to butter up to the rich. It is good to favor them because they shape your reality, and yet the Bible says don't do it. It might be common sense to actually be prejudiced. This is what kind of evolutionary neo-Darwinism says. Darwinism is survival of the fittest, right? Let the weak die out. And the Bible comes back and says, no. In no small part is our system of equality in our nation. It's, it might come out wrong in certain instances, but it is in no small part due to the Hebrew Scripture. So what is the biblical foundation for equality? For some of us, it might be the idea, the negative idea, that we're all sinners, we're all lawbreakers, and therefore, I'm not better than you because we're all evil, we're all wretches. But that is not the basis for the law. The law states that we're all to be treated equally because we all bear the image of God. That is the bottom line. The founding fathers knew this and ascribed equality by the creator. The creator has, has endowed us with some special privilege. And even they didn't see the obviousness of their own statement. Slavery existed for much time after they even said this. They said, God has made us all equal. Oh yeah, and I'm going to own you, by the way. Fortunately, we've built off of that idea and we've moved away from it. But isn't it interesting that how we treat others based on the biblical practices of equality don't come in the fact that we're all just equal sinners, but that we all have some special significance as human beings made in the image of God. That changes things. If equality is based merely on sin, we won't really respect it. If everyone is simply a wretch like me, then being nice is simply charity. Kindness to the poor is not the law. It is charity. But the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself. Seek after mercy. This is the law of love. It's the lens through which you should look. And this rings throughout James' passage today. But if I have little respect for humanity, because you're all sinners like me, and I have little respect for myself, then loving you as I love myself might not be that big a deal, because I might not love myself all that much. 
But if I have to, to ascribe dignity to you, everyone, everyone in, on this planet, all based on the fact that God says so because they bear his image, then that changes things. Genesis 9 says, do not murder because all people are made in the image of God. That was the basis of the law. The law of equality is based on dignity and not on sin. The law of God is the law of love. Loving the poor, then, is not charity. It is the law. It is the law that we love one another. And this means no matter how I view myself or how I view others in society, they have worth in the image of God. And this gives us our test to find out where our prejudices are, even though sometimes they are hard to define. The other day I was with a, a group of like-minded friends, uh, not anybody in this church, by the way, and we we're talking about a political issue, uh, and a particular political figure came up, not one well-known, by the way, and this political figure had said something very vile. And the person, uh, one of my friends said of this politician, he's a piece of garbage. He said, he used a different word, but you, use your imagination. I'm sure you're on the same page with me. And I felt something stir within me, something sour in my stomach. Maybe this politician doesn't make the best decisions. Maybe they said something that was vile, that gives me less than a good view of them. And maybe I'll work to get them out of office, but do I have the right to discard them as a piece of garbage? To say that their life is somehow valueless? The person themselves, this politician, can debase himself all he wants or herself. I don't want to get too specific. This person can debase themselves all they want. They can be guilty of making themselves seem vile, and that does not give me the right to do the same. What does it say of me if I, in my theological understanding, admit that every human being, as broken as we are, are made in the image of God, and the next breath say, and they're, wor they're a worthless piece of filth? Discard that person. What does that say about my view of the image of God in the other? So that's the test. Who would you try to push to the back in our church? And I don't mean that in the sense of literally sending the ushers out after them to move them to the back of the room. We in the South are much more passive-aggressive than that. Who is it that you want to marginalize through gossip? Who is it that you want to see understood as less than worthy of being here in our midst. I'm not saying anybody is, is there. I'm asking the honest question that James is asking. Who do you invite to be in your circles and who's the sort of person you would not invite? Who do you want to see in your Sunday, Sunday school class and who do you want not to be there? Who do you want in this house of worship? How is your heart towards the other? Whoever the other is for you. I don't know who the other is for you. Is there any type of person with all our various divisions that I've even mentioned, is there anybody who you don't want to see in our church? Think about the, the celebrities that we love to hate, the politicians we love to hate. Is there any of them that you would say, I don't think they're worthy to be here based on their religion, based on their race, based on their sexuality, based on their education, based on their economic status, based on their political beliefs or otherwise. What, who is it? And James wants to say something to all of us when we dig up these roots of prejudices in our life. 
He doesn't come out and completely condemn us. He just says, stop. Stop it. The very first verse of the scripture says it is imperative that Christians show no favoritism. Because if we're not a welcoming people to all types of people, then what are we here for? Christ says you're to be a light to all peoples. And so we get back to James' illustration. And this is why it can't be a one-to-one illustration. It can't just be what we see at first glance, a situation playing out in every town in America. Taking a closer look, we see words like law, court, judge, mercy. The synagogue was not just a center of worship like our churches are today. They were places where you could hold court. And James wants the people to think in terms of the courtroom. Your actions have consequences. And being judgmental is a detriment to your calling upon which we can be judged. So Jesus says, I did not come for the well. I came for the sick. Jesus loved us while we were yet sinners. Jesus says that he is the final judge, not us. And so who, is, or who are we to snub anybody who darkens our door? Because if we're doing that, what we're saying is they don't deserve what I have. If we snub another, James says you're being judgmental. Now, we've argued in the church about what it means to say don't judge one another. We've oversimplified the idea to say, well, you can't judge my sins. I won't judge your sins. That's not it at all. Many sins are clear in the scripture. Judgment is about deciding the sinner's fate for God. And how do you decide their fate? You make them unwelcome in your presence. Because we are the light of God. When we refuse to draw near the sinner, we're saying they're not worthy. They're not worthy of the Christ in me who came to me when I didn't deserve him. Are we, are we in a position to do that? James says if you're willing to judge others based on their sins and their shortcomings, then God will likewise judge us. For we have not accepted the truth of grace in that moment. We must love our neighbors as ourselves. That's the royal law. And just as the lawyer says, who is my neighbor? They're saints and sinners. They're black, white, brown, every color in between. They're educated. They're uneducated. They're the rich and they're the poor. They're Democrats and they're Republicans. They're gay and they're straight. They're Christians and they're Muslims. They're likable and unlikable. They're just like you and they're nothing like you and everywhere in between. And most importantly, every person you come in contact with is made in the image of God. As broken as that might, they might be, the reason you accept them is because every single one that you come in contact with is made in the image of God. If you don't respect them, you don't respect yourself, at least respect him. And when I say you, 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 I'm, I'm talking to me, me, me. I don't, I'm not pointing my finger at anybody. I'm just preaching what James is trying to get across to us in a way that we can hear it in our modern time. As the band comes back up, I want to say this. May it always be said of College Place that we are a hospitable people to all. That we are a people who reject favoritism. Jesus could reject sin and love and accept the sinner. And the elite in his society accused him of being a friend of sinners. May we be accused of having that same reputation. May we be known as the friend of sinners at College Place. A church who is not willing to be the light for a broken world, James says, will be judged. If you show mercy, 
you will be given mercy. College Place, let's show mercy. Let's hold on to mercy. Justice is served when we show mercy because that's how we were given our justice. Our willingness to look through the lens of love will determine how far we can make it in the future, especially with some of the battles we'll face ahead. But James says, whatever you believe, it's imperative that as the people of God, you show no group favoritism. This isn't about who's right and wrong. Some people are in the wrong, some people are in the right on various issues. That doesn't matter. What is that to you? You're just there to love them and to serve them. God can sort the rest of it out. You don't have to determine whether or not they get the love of God. If you're wondering, they all deserve it. May we be a people accused of radically loving. We don't have to agree on all the issues, but we have to agree to be a people on mission. We have to agree to be the church of Jesus Christ. And the law, the royal law that he gives us is to love everyone, to ascribe dignity to the person nothing like you, to ascribe dignity to the person who won't ascribe it to themselves because that's what Jesus did for us. I pray that all of us will find those places in our heart and come and dig them up, no shame, and give them to God so that we can be a people that are known for love. This has been a production of College Place United Methodist Church. May God bless you richly upon hearing this message.